Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code DUMDUM, D-U-M, D-U-M. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 18, in between episode 2. This is the second in between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And these in between episodes are a chance to play around with the format of the show, do something a little different, experiment, maybe try out something that will later stick. And in this episode, I'm going to read an excerpt from my second book, You Are Now Less Dumb. And this excerpt comes from the chapter on a psychological phenomenon called the Benjamin Franklin effect. Benjamin Franklin knew how to deal with haters. Born in 1706 as the eighth of 17 children to a Massachusetts soap and candlestick maker, the chances Benjamin would go on to become a gentleman, scholar, scientist, statesman, musician, author, publisher, and all-around general badass were astronomically low. Yet he did just that and more because he was a master of the game of personal politics. Like many people, full of drive and intelligence born into a low station, Franklin developed strong people skills and social powers. All else denied, the analytical mind will pick apart behavior, and Franklin became adroit at human relations. From an early age, he was a talker and a schemer, a man of guile, cunning, and persuasive charm. He stockpiled a cache of secret weapons, one of which was the Benjamin Franklin effect, a tool as useful today as it was in the 1730s, and still just as counterintuitive. To understand it, let's first rewind back to 1706. Franklin's prospects were dim. With 17 children, Josiah and Abiah Franklin could afford only two years of schooling for Franklin. Instead, they made him work, and when he was 12, he became an apprentice to his brother James, who was a printer in Boston. The printing business gave Benjamin the opportunity to read books and pamphlets. It was as if Ben Franklin was the one kid in the neighborhood who had access to the internet. He read 
everything and taught himself every skill and discipline one could absorb from text. At age 17, Franklin left Boston and started his own printing business in Philadelphia. At 21, he formed a club of mutual improvement called the Junto. It was a grand scheme to gobble up knowledge. He invented working class polymaths like him to have the chance to pull together their books and trade thoughts and knowledge of the world on a regular basis. They wrote and recited essays, held debates, and devised ways to acquire currency. Franklin used the Junto as a private consulting firm, a think tank, and he bounced ideas off the other members so he could write and print better pamphlets. Franklin eventually founded the first subscription library in America, writing that it would make, quote, the common tradesmen and farmers as intelligent as most gentlemen from other countries, not to mention give him access to whatever books he wanted to buy. Genius. By the 1730s, Franklin was riding down an information superhighway of his own construction, and the constant stream of information made him a savvy politician in Philadelphia. A celebrity and an entrepreneur who printed both a newspaper and an almanac, Franklin had collected a few enemies by the time he ran for the position of clerk of the General Assembly, but he knew how to deal with them. As clerk, he could step into a waterfall of data coming out of the nascent government. He would record and print public records, bills, vote totals, and other official documents. He would also make a fortune, literally printing the state's paper money. He won the race, but the next election wasn't going to be as easy. Franklin's autobiography never mentions the guy's name, but when Franklin ran for his second term as clerk, one of his colleagues delivered a long speech to the legislature, lambasting him. Franklin still won his second term, but his critic truly pissed him off. In addition, this man was, quote, a gentleman of fortune and education, who Franklin believed would one day become a person of great influence in the government. So, Franklin knew he had to be dealt with. Franklin set out to turn his hater into a fan, but he wanted to do it without, quote, paying any servile respect to him. Franklin's reputation as a book collector and library founder gave him a standing as a man of discerning literary tastes. So Franklin sent a letter to the hater asking if he could borrow a specific selection from his library, one that was, quote, a very scarce and curious book. The rival, flattered, sent it right away. Franklin sent it back a week later with a thank you note. Mission accomplished. The next time the legislature met, the man approached Franklin and spoke to him in person for the first time. Franklin said, the man, quote, ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions so that we became great friends and our relationship continued to his death. So what exactly happened here? How can asking for a favor turn a hater into a fan? How can requesting kindness cause a person to change his opinion about you? The answer to what generates the Benjamin Franklin effect is the answer to much more about why you do what you do. In psychology, it's well known that the cart of behavior often gets before the horse of attitude. Now, our attitudes are uncontrollable, unconscious reactions to all sorts of things. For instance, let's imagine Justin Bieber. You feel that? 
That's your attitude toward Justin Bieber. It's a cascade of associations and feelings just zipping along inside your neural net. Let's try a couple more. Blueberry cheesecake. See? Nice, huh? And um, total nuclear apocalypse. So that thunderhead of brain activity is telling you how you feel about that thing that I just said. And you have to ask yourself, how did you form that attitude? For many things, your attitudes came from your actions, and that led to observations that led to explanations that then led to beliefs. It's sort of like saying, your actions tend to chisel away at the raw marble of your persona, carving into being the self you experience day to day. I mean, it doesn't feel that way, though. To conscious experience, it feels as if you were the one holding the chisel, motivated by existing thoughts and beliefs. It feels as though the person wearing your pants performed actions consistent with your established character. Yet there is plenty of research suggesting otherwise. The things you do often create the things you believe. As a professional, do you feel motivated, compelled to wear a suit? Or after donning a suit, do you conduct yourself in a professional manner? Do you vote democratic because you champion social programs, or do you champion social programs because you vote democratic? Well, the research suggests the latter, in both cases. And as the great Kurt Vonnegut said, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. When you become a member of a group, or a fan of a genre, or the user of a product, those things have more influence on your attitudes than your attitudes have on them. But why? Well, there are several theories here. Um, several models to explain the evidence that we've collected so far. One is self-perception theory, and it says your attitudes are shaped by observing your own behavior. Being unable to pinpoint the cause and trying to make sense of it, you look back on a situation as if part of an audience trying to understand your own motivations. You act as observer of your actions, a witness to your thoughts, and you form beliefs about yourself based on those observations. Self-perception theory shows that you unconsciously observe your own actions and then explain them in a pleasing way without ever realizing it. Benjamin Franklin's enemy observed himself performing a generous and positive act by offering the treasured tome to his rival, and then he unconsciously explained his own behavior to himself. He must not have hated Benjamin Franklin after all, he thought. Why else would I have done something like that? Most psychologists would probably explain the Benjamin Franklin effect through the lens of cognitive dissonance, a giant theory made up of thousands of studies that have pinned down a menagerie of mental stumbling blocks, including the ones that I often talk about on the podcast, such as confirmation bias, hindsight bias, the backfire effect, the sunk cost fallacy, and so on. But as a general theory, it describes something you experience every day. Sometimes you can't find a logical, moral, or socially acceptable explanation for your actions. Sometimes your behavior runs counter to the expectations of your culture, your social group, your family, or even the person you believe yourself to be. In those moments, you ask, why did I do that? And if the answer damages your self-esteem, well, a justification is required. You feel as if a bag of sand has ruptured in your head, filling all the nooks and crannies of your brain, and you want relief. You see the proof in an MRI scan of someone presented with political opinions that conflict with their own. 
The brain scans of a person shown statements that oppose her political stance show the highest areas of the cortex, the portions responsible for providing rational thought, get less blood until another statement is presented that confirms her beliefs. Your brain literally begins to shut down when you feel your ideology is threatened. Try it yourself. Watch a pundit you hate for 15 minutes. Resist the urge to change the channel. Don't complain to the person next to you. Don't get online and rant. Try to let it go. You will find this is excruciatingly difficult. A great example of cognitive dissonance comes from a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me by Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson, where they write about the great psychologist Leon Festinger, who in 1957 infiltrated a doomsday cult. Dorothy Martin, who called herself Sister Thedra, led this cult. She convinced her followers in Chicago that an alien spacecraft would suck them up and fly right away as a massive flood ended the human race on December 21st, 1954. Well, many of her followers gave away everything they owned, including their homes, as the day approached, and Festinger wanted to see what would happen when the spaceship and the flood failed to appear. He hypothesized the cult members would face a choice, either see themselves as foolish rubes or assume their faith had spared them. Would the cult members keep their weird beliefs beyond the date? Well, of course they did. Once enough time had passed that they could be pretty sure no spaceships were coming, they began to contact the media with the good news. Their positive energy had convinced God to spare them and spare the earth. They had freaked out and then found a way to calm down. Fessinger saw their heightened state of arousal as a special form of anxiety, cognitive dissonance. When you experience this arousal, it is as if two competing beliefs are struggling in a mental bar fight, knocking over chairs and smashing bottles over each other's heads. It feels awful, and the feeling persists until one belief knocks the other out cold. One of my favorite experiments in all of psychology really helps illustrate all this and bring the Benjamin Franklin effect into focus. It's, um, it's so neat. And here's how it went. Students at Stanford University signed up for a two-hour experiment called Measures of Performance as a requirement to pass a class in 1959. The researchers divided them into two groups. One was told they would receive what would be about $8 in today's money, and the other group was told they would receive what is about $150 in today's money. The scientists then explained that the students would be helping improve the research department by evaluating a new experiment. They were then led into a room where they had to use one hand to place wooden spools into a tray and remove them over and over again. A half hour later, the task changed to turning square pegs clockwise on a flat board one quarter spin at a time for half an hour. All the while, an experimenter watched and scribbled. It was one hour of torturous tedium, with a guy watching and taking notes. At the end of the hour, the researcher asked the student if he could do the school a favor on his way out by telling the next student scheduled to perform the tasks who was waiting outside that the experiment was fun and interesting. Finally, after all of that, after lying, people in both groups, one with $8 in their pocket and one with $150, filled out a survey in which they were asked their true feelings about the study. Now, what do you think they said? Here's a hint. One group not only lied to the person waiting outside, but went on to report that they loved repeatedly turning little wooden knobs. Which one do you think internalized that lie? 
Well, on average, the people paid $8 reported that the study was stimulating, and the people paid $150 reported that what they just went through was astoundingly boring, terrible. Why the difference? Well, according to the psychologist behind this, Leon Festinger, both groups lied about the hour, but only one felt cognitive dissonance. It was as if the group paid $150 thought to themselves, well, what I just went through was awful, and I just lied about it. But they paid me a lot of money, so, you know, no worries. Their mental discomfort was quickly and easily dealt with by a nice external justification. The group paid $8? They had no real outside justification, so they turned inward. They altered their beliefs to salve their cerebral sunburn. And this is why volunteering feels good and unpaid interns work so hard. Without an obvious outside reward, you create an internal one. And that's the cycle of cognitive dissonance. A painful confusion about who you are gets resolved by seeing the world in a more satisfying way. As Leon Festinger said, you make, quote, your view of the world fit with how you feel or what you've done. So, when you feel anxiety over your actions, you will seek to lower the anxiety by creating a fantasy world in which your anxiety can't exist. And then you come to believe the fantasy is reality, just as Benjamin Franklin's rival did. He couldn't possibly have lent a rare book to a guy he didn't like, so he must actually like him. Problem solved. So there are several competing theories, competing models to explain why the Benjamin Franklin effect is real, but there are plenty of experiments that reveal that it is true. In experiments in which people have to do a favor for a person who acts like a real asshole, the people who have to do the person a favor tend to rate that person more highly than another group that doesn't do that person a favor. And the other way around is also true. In a group of people who are basically nice, but you're forced to berate them, people tend to rate those people as being less likable than people who didn't have to berate them. So the research suggests you tend to like the people to whom you are kind and to dislike the people to whom you are rude. And that's an important thing to remember from experiments like the Stanford prison experiment to Abu Ghraib to concentration camps and the attitudes of soldiers in wartime. Mountains of evidence suggest that behaviors create attitudes when harming just as they do when helping. The Benjamin Franklin effect is the result of your concept of self coming under attack. Every person develops a persona, and that persona persists because inconsistencies in your personal narrative get rewritten, redacted, and misinterpreted. When the source of your own behavior becomes mysterious, you will confabulate a story that is consistent with your concept of who you believe yourself to be. Above all, when considering the Benjamin Franklin effect, remember the more harm you cause, the more hate you feel, and the more kindness you express, and the more you come to love those you help. And now, a word from our sponsors, Audible and Squarespace. Audible. You've thought about it, you've considered it, and now Audible is offering listeners of the You Are Not So Smart podcast a free audiobook of their choice and a free 30-day trial membership just by going to 
audiblepodcast.com slash not so smart, where you can choose from more than 150,000 titles, fiction, nonfiction, bestsellers, every category imaginable. And you can get both of my books there. You're not so smart and you are now less dumb. And not only that, you can get free apps for iPhone, Android, Windows Phone. You can download and listen on your iPhone, iPod, Android, Kindle Fire, Windows Phone, and more than 500 MP3 players. It's not like a streaming or rental service because with Audible, you own your books. And the My Library feature lets you access your books anytime, even from your phone. With WhisperSync for voice, you can switch back and forth between your Kindle and your audiobook without ever losing your place or missing a word. And the Immersion Reader on the Kindle Fire HD lets you listen and read at the same time, and it highlights the text as you read along with the narrator. And look, if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash smart and you pick out a book and you don't like that book, well, you can decide at any time, no questions asked, you can exchange that book for something else, any title, any time. Now, I recommend you get... The Self-Illusion by Bruce Hood. He was a guest on a previous podcast. I love that book and he reads it. It's really cool when the author reads the book for you and you know it's their voice and you know it's the way that they wanted to present the information. So check that out. Audiblepodcast.com slash not so smart. This episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is also brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, you need to go to squarespace.com and use the offer code DUMDUM. That's D-U-M-D-U-M. Now, Squarespace is always adding new features. They recently added commerce, e-commerce to their platform. So if you want to set up a shop and sell things, you can do so in just a few minutes. And everything is drag and drop. You can just take content from your desktop and rearrange elements of the content of your pages and everything. And it will just, uh, it'll show up immediately. They have 24 seven support in New York city and something that I don't understand why it's called this, but it's called the care bear lair where more than 70 Squarespace employees get together and they live chat with you. They'll send you emails back and forth very quickly. And overall Squarespace is just design focused. They care about design. All their templates are extremely clean and they allow your content to be the focus of your website. And this might be most important to most people. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content will look great on every device, every time. Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website right now. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code DUMDUM, D-U-M, D-U-M, to get 10% off and to show your support for the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. And now we return to our program. There's an article in Time Magazine this month, and the headline says, you can find this at time.com, one in four Americans apparently unaware the Earth orbits the sun. Yes, Time Magazine, that's the headline. Um, And here's this, this is a question that was asked to uh, Americans in a survey, and it was asked to people all around the world, but um, here it is. Here's the question. Does the earth go around the sun or does the sun go around the earth? And Time Magazine 
says that when asked that question, one in four Americans surveyed answered incorrectly. A quarter of Americans do not understand this most fundamental principle of basic science, says Time Magazine. Um, so what happened here was this is a survey. It was conducted by the National Science Foundation. They asked 2,200 participants and uh, it had nine questions in a quiz about physical and biological sciences. And uh, that's the one. That's the one that really uh, makes you go, oh, my God. <laughs> um, Americans actually fared better than Europeans, though, who took the test. Um, only 66% of people in the European Union answered this, answer this question correctly. So, um, you know, this is, makes for a really uh, depressing headline or whatever, or a funny headline. But it also illustrates the, the importance of thinking of science as a tool that had to be invented to get us out of thinking the way that we naturally think. And the way that we naturally think is to come up with a conclusion and then try to defend that conclusion through the lenses of cognitive biases, using the techniques of logical fallacies until we feel satisfied that we can keep thinking what we already thought. And the scientific method, and there are variations of this, of course, but the scientific method sort of goes the other direction saying, no, let's just simply observe the natural world, either through a telescope or through um, our eyeballs or whatever, or using experimentation. And when you do that, you have to then take the evidence as it is and try to figure out what it says about the nature of reality. And you do that by, in part, trying to disconfirm your assumptions. Whatever your hypotheses are, you try to disconfirm them over and over again until you get closer and closer to the truth. And our natural inclination is to try to confirm our hypotheses instead. And we do it unconsciously. We do it uh, automatically. And we do it with great confidence in whatever we decide after um, having defended that conclusion. So, you know, you look in the sky and the sun looks like it goes around the earth. And it's it makes sense that unless you've been educated, um, you won't know that's uh, not true. And if you if you've um, haven't been educated, then you will have to go through some sort of scientific experimentation. And it took us a long time as a uh, as a species and in many different cultures to finally reach that conclusion to finally understand that we were wrong for so long. The heartbeat, the human heartbeat, wasn't understood as uh, being the uh, the muscle contractions of a muscle in the center of our chest for until the late 1600s, early 1700s. Uh, even after we understood what circulation was and that, that they, the blood went round and round, it doesn't mean, it's crazy to think now that for uh, millennia, people had no idea what the heart really was or what a heartbeat was or what a pulse was. In fact, from since Aristotle and through the time of Galen, most people believed that the heart was the center of um, intelligence and that's where the emotions came from. And the brain, um, depending on what era you go back to, was considered just a cooling system for the heart. And if, and if you did believe that the brain had any sort of... Um, intelligence in it or it was the seat of any kind of emotion or whatever most uh people early uh philosophers and, and uh, doctors they thought that it was in the ventricles the spaces inside the brain where all that stuff lived and it's it's there's a great book on this it's called soul made flesh by um carl zimmer and um as he details the story of how the brain was eventually discovered the reason for it why because when you cut up, cut open a human head up until the uh, the advent of preserving things in alcohol, 
the brain had just almost always deteriorated so much that it just looked like goop and no philosopher or early scientist or early physician would look at that goop and think that it, it did anything whatsoever. It just, uh, it was impossible to dissect or observe. So yes, one in four Americans apparently are unaware that the earth orbits the sun. And, uh, it is, it, I think it illustrates how important it was that we invented the tool of science and how important it is that we, uh, become versed in critical thinking and, um, and the rules of logic and so on, because that's what leads us out of ignorance and ignorance will rush in whenever science is removed from the equation. And that's all that's happening here. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. The music in this episode was provided by a couple of different sources. I sent out this request on the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page asking for contributions. And uh, the stuff that I used the most came from Tony Markey, who has this page, banjopocalypse.bandcamp.com, where you can find the music that I used in this episode. I also used music from Drew Garraway, who has provided music for the show for a while now. And... Also, Broken Birthday contributed music to the podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. And if you head to boingboing.net, you'll find more great podcasts like this one. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.